Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is my unedited conversation with the legendary leadership coach, Jerry Colonna. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. So, so Jerry, I'll definitely say um, in the script that, that you and I know each other. I'll have to confess oh, that. Oh, good. And probably that you're my coach, too. I'll have to say that, too. Um, the book is wonderful, though I just, you know, I just... I really, I, I, I looked at such an early draft, and I really felt like I was reading um, something for the first time. And so I'm excited for this to be out in the world. Well, um, you know, I'll, yeah. I'll say it to you now. Um, uh, you were incredibly helpful, um, encouraging, and even in some of the, the uh, as, what is it, Annie Lamott says, uh, the shitty first draft. <laughs> you were really helpful. There, so I really appreciate that. A pleasure. I was thinking as I was, um, I was thinking as I was looking at you. Something I love is that you begin, you frame um, the chapters with a series of questions that are kind of raised and probed in each chapter, which, of course. I really appreciate because you know I think a lot of questions and um, mm. and it starts with uh, you're talking about leadership you're talking about the ways we make our living isn't that such an interesting phrase um, mm. and it, and it begins with how did my relationship to money first get formed and how did his how does it influence the way I work as an adult thinking about um, you know the 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 first question that I I often usually ask, which was informed by uh, these Benedictines, who would pick up a big theological subject or mystery and and begin the discussion by asking people to answer the question through the story of your life. And the question mm-hmm. could be, "What is prayer? What is God? Or what is the meaning of life?" So I thought I might just adapt. Um, my first question, based on where you start a lot of your thinking, um, which is, which would be to say, you know, how would you think about, how would you start to talk about the religious or spiritual background of your childhood and the relationship of that to the notions of money and success that you walked and out of childhood with, mm-hmm. and 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 spiritual, of course, is. Understand expansively the formation of your inner life or, you know, your inner drama. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful question, um, separate and above and beyond this conversation, but even within this conversation and linking it back to the whole question of money. Um, what occurs to me is... Um, is a memory, and you know, um, as a boy, I was raised Catholic, and um, uh, what just came back as you asked that question was being, say, five, six, seven years old. 
um, in my Catholic school uniform, uh, sitting in a pew, wondering, really wondering if I was worthy, wondering if I was good enough, um, staring up at Christ on the cross, wondering if, in fact, his sacrifice, if I was living up to his sacrifice. Mm. And I think that there's a connection there to the, to the question around money, which, um, can I earn it? Can I, you know, mm. is a, this relationship with value and worthiness? I don't know if that makes sense. Which we, which we those of us raised with religious formation, sometimes infer from that. Mm. Those traditions. Mm. I, I also, I'm also thinking when you tell that story about um, memories that you share about growing up with your mother's mental illness and your father's alcoholism and the tension that was between your parents and kind of an undercurrent of violence on the streets of a of the Brooklyn you grew up in and also inside your home and you talking about how as a child you were so aware that you were not enough. You were not enough to stop any of this. Yeah. And so again, I you know, your observation takes me back to being in that pew wondering if I was enough. Um, because clearly, and this, this was um, an inappropriately assumed, inappropriately assigned responsibility um, that I needed to be enough to stop the violence or needed to be enough to create uh, love, safety, and belonging, or needed enough, needed to be enough just to, to make the chaos go away. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, yeah, that's, uh, that's powerful. And it's, you know, even the question is dropping me back into that time period. So, um, and culturally, we do, you know, money is our, our most ready shorthand for what can get you safe and what can get you uh, control mm-hmm. and what can make you, what, what it would seem would make you appear worthy, not just to others, but to yourself. Yeah, I, you know, that to me, the last piece, I mean, the, the safety... Money can create a sense of safety. It doesn't necessarily, um, as as is well known, it doesn't necessarily um, create permanent safety now and forever. But mm-hmm. it can create. It can certainly make things easier um, in so many ways. But um, I think the pursuit is. So the pursuit is often around security, but the pursuit is also around worthiness. And mm-hmm. it is, it's powerful, and it's, I think it goes against some of the most basic tenets of our religious traditions and our spiritual traditions when, it, when we receive the message that we are only worthy if we have money. Right. And I unfortunately think that that's actually one of the messages in our society. Yeah. Um, there's this... Um, this notion of Carl Jung, um, the psychiatrist, I am not what has happened to me. I am what I choose to become, which is such a beautiful statement. And yet, as you say, 
but choosing choosing what we become requires knowing and that is kind of the work of a lifetime yeah <laughs> indeed you know um when i first discovered that quote it felt so liberating um because when you mm-hmm. first start the process of trying to know what has happened and know um know your past to sort of turn around and look over your shoulder and say where was i what did i go through mm-hmm. when that first when that moment starts to happen it can feel overwhelming it can feel you start to understand why people choose not to look over their shoulder and look backward or to look inward as i would say in the book right uh, in this sort of self-inquiring process and in that overwhelm we can shut down but the second half of of carl jung's quote is so powerful it's so liberating because it reinforces the notion that 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 part of this process is actually choosing the life that we want and that i i think that too many of us grow up without the notion that we actually can choose to be who we need to be who we want to be and and the focus of your energy and uh and and your um and your vocation um is is how that manifests uh in leadership and at work and um you know you you say that work and I, I think it's really important that you acknowledge that that work gives us means to create the safety up, upon which our lives depend that it feeds and shelters us and those we love that work can give meaning, but work can also be a means of our suffering. And in fact, that without that, without self-knowledge, work, which, which most of us struggle with, I mean, it's not like that's ever complete, that work is a place that we play out and replay, yeah, what has happened to us in our lives, um, what our inner drama is, and that we actually become complicit in the conditions that constantly recreate them. Um, that's something that I have learned from you. It's so fundamental, but it's not something any of us learn in school or come yeah. into our working <laughs> lives prepared to, to even see, you know, much less navigate. How, yeah. When did you first start to see that? How did you start to see it? Well, I think um, I think it took me actually stepping out of a work routine um, to begin to be able to look backwards and see um, my own relationship to work, and then eventually in working with clients, um, in hearing their stories and hearing and holding their stories, beginning to see that. Um, you know, I left J.P. Morgan. And I was 38, 39 years old. And um, really for the first time, in, in certainly in my adult life, but, but perhaps for the first time even since being a teenager, I didn't have a defined title. I didn't have a job per se. I was very busy. I had very, you know, I was making money doing one thing or another and I was creating the means of support but um, I didn't have that all-defining job. And 
it occurred at a moment when I was clearly in midlife, clearly at that moment. And I think it's, it was during that period that I began to really question um, what was it that work was doing to me, if you will? What mm-hmm. was it that career was doing to me? And you had a successful career. I mean, you, you know, you just said you'd had that defining job, but you were making a lot of money. You were mm-hmm. you were recognized for making a lot of money, and you had the the power or the appearance of power that comes with mm-hmm. with that. Yeah, I was. Um, it was a time in my life, um, and I look back now and I kind of laugh because it was so silly. But it was a time in my life where, where the media in particular was fascinated with all things internet-related. Uh, this was like the dot-com pre-bubble, right? Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was, it, was, it was kind of, you know, that first dot-com bubble really burst in, Mar- in March of 2000 and slowly, slowly started collapsing. And, you know, I had the great good fortune for that collapse to occur just as I was turning... 38, 39, into my 40s. Um, And uh, I remember New York Magazine doing an article on uh, my partner Fred Wilson and I in which they labeled us as princes of New York. Yeah. And, um, you know, the dichotomy between being perceived as one thing but internally feeling completely differently was just so overwhelming. And I think that... Um, you know, it became rich, fertile ground for this kind of exploration in, in, well, who am I independent of any work identity or who am I independent of what New York Magazine has to say about me? Right. Yeah, I'm someplace you, you wrote, the world loved my doing, but the more the world applauded, the more my soul ached. And and then you have this quote from St. Augustine, my soul was a burden, bruised and bleeding. I was tired of the man who carried it. Something that just is in this image of you and so many people, so many of us, um, and so many stories that, that come at us kind of secondhand, is this bizarre disconnect between what is rewarded in our society and what is actually good for us and even what we long for. I mean, that's another way I would say, I would describe what you're pointing at with, with the, the peril and the promise of who we are at work. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think, I think it's an epidemic challenge in our society that um, we reward Collectively, we reward with approbation, with money, with fame, with success, um, behaviors that are um, that can be so destructive, um, destructive to the individual, destructive to our communities, destructive to our planet, and so there's this destructive there's to this employees. Destructive to employees, mm-hmm. you know. There's, there's when, when, when you have a leader, someone who has positional power, who is walking around with a bruised and battered and bloodied soul, and not actually pausing to recognize that that phenomenon is occurring, and then they get to set employee policy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we start to recreate these systems of of toxicity 
for many of us, though, you know, similar to those which we grew up with. It's a really um, heady mix um, uh, of different forces at work, different vectors at work. And again, I think the 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 plain truth that you explore in your work and in your writing, but which is something that we scarcely ever name and are not prepared to navigate, is that the ways each and every one of us survived our childhoods is flowing into leadership and is flowing into how our how our organizations are structured and and our shared life inside organizations yeah you know oftentimes i'll I'll step into an organization and or or work with uh, a particular leader and they'll sort of look at me quizzically with i don't understand why this is happening to me and I don't understand what is, in fact, going on. What, is the, what are the forces at work here? And, um, you know, I often think of that, either that quote by Carl Jung, which is, you know, around understanding the choices that we have, the, the, the quote you referenced before, or even his other quote, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Right. And so they walk in and they say, you know, we're fated to be toxic in this way. We're fated to be dysfunctional in this way. And I think that uh, part of the work that I ask people to do is to just sort of look quizzically at that and say, really? Fated? Hmm. Maybe maybe you have some choice here. So a couple, couple things I want to um, kind of um, give some definition to. Um, and one is, is the notion of leadership. Because it, 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 in its traditional and, and increasingly the, the way it is, is expressed in non-traditional ways or, or, or new ways, right? I mean, um, and you are often working with founders, leaders, especially in the tech industry, like people who are running major industries, major corporations, um, or really uh, dynamic startups. Um, mm. And so, so we're going to be talking about that um, leadership at that um, leadership, you know, just traditionally described and defined. And then there's this way that, um, yeah, I, I think leadership is we, we're we're increasingly understanding that in a healthy, functional organization, there's leadership at every level. That's and right. that leadership, and 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 then there's also this phenomenon that I'm really aware of. Like I was at a dinner table in London a, a, a last week, and uh, with this remarkable group of people, somewhere in their 20s or 30s, I suppose mostly in their 30s, and everybody went went around at the table talking about what they're doing, and every single one of them had made up their job, which I think is more and more common. Um, mm-hmm. And so, right, and so that's a that's a. That's a new form of leadership. Um, and one of the things you talk about is um, that what this calls all of us to learn to do is to lead ourselves, to lead yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And um, learning to lead yourself. So, so how do you talk about what that means? How do you start talking about what that means and what's involved in that? Well, if we, we can come at it from a couple of different angles, we can talk about power, right? Because that's often associated with leadership in that way. Yeah. Or 
what might be more helpful is to sort of come at it from a different angle, which is, okay, what does it actually mean to lead oneself? What does it actually mean when, when you, as you just said, right, leadership actually starts to um, be manifested throughout an organization? Um, or if I'm in a self-created vocation, yeah. which I really relate to, um, then I am in effect leading myself. And I think what the, that latter inquiry process leads us to 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 look at the association that that I like to make and somewhat you know as a joke, but but this notion that leadership as a path into adulthood, um, mm-hmm. and that what's what's really um, available to us is to explore leadership as a means to that finishing process, that actualization process of us becoming the person that we really choose to be, the the person that lives into that quote, the power of that quote that you read at the top of the conversation. That we're not um, we're not we're not defined by what has happened to us, but what we choose to become. That's right. Who we and choose, so, who, who and what we choose to become. Yeah. That's right. And so that 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 Carl Jung notion of 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 recognizing what we what we have been through and recognizing that we are choosing to do something right now um, or with the rest of our lives that 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 leadership presents that opportunity to to move us down that path precisely because those leadership situations are so challenging and so provocative and evocative of the past for us yeah and um and you and I have also had this this conversation um, these last years about how uh, there's this kind of the new idea of bringing our whole selves to work, which is it's kind, it's absurd on one hand because of course we were always bringing our whole selves to work right. <laughs> but <laughs> right. but right. we were pretending that we weren't from That's at, right. you know at every at every level of the hierarchy. Um, and so, so that whole self, all those things that we were bringing, were coming out and passive aggressive. We're you know passive aggressive, pressed, and 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 we we had pick out passive aggressive, pressed, and dysfunctional workplaces. So now we're saying, and I think meaning. I mean, so many of us are meaning, and and I think new generations are forcing this um, that we bring our whole selves to work. But but so but that. That also brings a lot of new responsibility with it, and we're just and incredible opportunity, right? This what you just said. Um, yes, that work becomes this place where we become who we who we want to be, and yet it also it by 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 shifting those those boundaries that we thought we'd created to keep all of this under control. It also creates a space in which all these things that we didn't realize we were bringing to work with us, like everything we learned in our childhoods and all of our lives about what to say and what not to say and who we could be and who we could not be, all of that is out in the open. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, you know, I want to go back to the whole arc of that experience, you know, in, yeah. in quote, in the old days, right, <laughs> which yeah. is just yeah. such a funny phrase. But in the old days, perhaps when you and I 
were first socialized as employees, um, there was that all that that phrase. Well, you you leave the personal at the door, right? Right. Um, you don't bring it into the workplace, and that got promulgated. Um, across multiple generations with people saying, well, don't leave your feelings. Don't bring your feelings into work. Don't, mm -hmm. And you certainly don't cry. And you certainly don't have these extraordinary emotions. And then we had this um, period, and it still goes on. I mean, I'm speaking about it as if it's all past, but of course, it's still very much present. We have these situations, if you will, where People don't understand why they've somaticized that pain or they they are living a life, as our mutual friend Parker Palmer would say, divided, right? Mm -hmm. And and uh, where the inner and the outer are not in alignment. And they're going through their days and they're going through their days and they're, they may have outward success, but inwardly they're, they're feeling as I once did, right? Bruised and battered, that soul just too much of a burden for the man to carry. And we're not, and it, in those moments, we tend to fail to see that when we ask human beings to show up uh, without their full self, without their full catastrophic, ca catastrophic self, <laughs> yeah. um, with all of the messes that they are, with all of the discomfort, with all, when we ask them to sort of put it into a box, not only do we do a dis disservice to them as individuals, but we actually cut ourselves off from a, a profound source of creativity and inspiration. Hmm. That could be our lives, what we, what we learn about it and how we grow as human beings in the course of, of our work. Sure, but it, could, but, but it could also be um, um, profoundly helpful to the enterprise in which we find ourselves working. Mm. So, for mm. example, when we deny... Um, that we hold certain belief systems from our childhood, that we created those belief systems to survive the challenges of our childhood. When we deny that those things are going on and we shove them into you know, the, the, the long black bag behind us, as the poet Robert Bly would describe the shadow, when we shove that all back in there, what we are cutting ourselves off from is the, the very source of much of our creativity, much of our innovation. And the result is that our organizations are actually less um, productive, less um, uh, imaginative, le not just poor workplaces for individuals to be, but poor places for collaboration and creativity and spontaneity and laughter and humor because we have cut off, if you will, limbs. We have cut off part of ourselves in a bid to to give to to live into that credence that you leave the personal at the door and you don't actually bring it into the workplace. I mean, one of the one of the questions, and you you name a lot of questions that mm, I love can questions. guide us. Yeah, I mean, questions that can guide us as much as any answers. Um, mm. And and one of them is um, that you know, yes, you use this language. You've been using this a little bit of radical inquiry. Kind of, you know, on the one hand, there there are actually all these questions that also don't have pat answers, like how do you form an organization? How do you grow an enterprise? How do you 
how do you hire well? How do you manage well? How do you let someone go humanely? In fact, there's no mm. roadmap for those. But then there's the deeper truths. We don't have really the words or skills to contemplate, like why, how, and to what human effect does my behavior have on me and the people I work with? I mean, one of the core questions in that inquiry that you note is, who is the person I've been all my life? Mm. Which sounds so obvious, but it's not, is it? I mean, <laughs> well, I, you know, in in my observation, and and this stemmed first from my own experience in my own body, but in the observations that that I have developed around watching other folks, is that we don't tend to pay attention to who I am. You know, I tell the story in the book, and I I think you've seen me do this. One of the most um, radically inquiring questions I ask people is, I ask them, how are you? I mean, I literally just, that, just that question alone. And I ask it in a way that actually implies genuine interest. How yeah. are you? Like, just pause. How are you? How are you actually feeling in your body right now? Are you tired? Are you scared? Are you exhausted? Are you filled with joy? Are you filled with anxiety? Is it all of the above? Is it none of the above? I, in my experience, we don't even pay attention to that question ourselves. And so to go to the deeper question of who is the adult, who is the person I have been all my life, that mm. takes a, a radical step because mm. I haven't actually been paying attention. I've been so busy, I actually haven't paid attention to my life. Yeah, and also so much of the way we've organized this, especially our professional selves, is about presentation and performance and right and and even overwork and and this question of who you who you are, who you've been all your life is really takes it's buried by that. It's it's subsumed. It it I think it's buried by that partially because it's not safe because we repeatedly create situations mm -hmm. in our organizations, in our communities in many ways, let alone our businesses, where it's not safe for the whole self to show up. It's not safe. It's not acceptable for yeah. the full. It's not even reasonable to, to, uh, to ex ex expect that people should do that. It's not even reasonable to show, to expect that my whole self should be mm -hmm. welcome with a sense of belonging. But it's not I think that's one of the vectors that, that impact that. But another vector that impacts it, I think, is the, the um, fascination with outcome and output, mm -hmm. right? And so mm -hmm. if all we're focused on is um, getting to the next thing and doing a good job, getting the A, getting the right grade, and all we're focused on is the next thing, then we don't actually uh, have space to inquire with a simple question like, how am I feeling right now? Let alone the larger question, who have I been all my life? Which to me become essential questions to the larger question of who do I want to be? What mm -hmm. kind of company do I want to build? What kind of place of work do I want to live into? I don't know how one answers those latter questions without being able to pause long enough to be able to say, I get scared when people are angry in my workplace. Right. 
because because when we if we say if if these questions and longings are allowed then what is what is present is very complicated that's right and messy and messy and we don't necessarily we're not socialized to know what to do with other people's messiness let alone our yeah. own let alone our own right <laughs> i mean so 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 one of the things that you uh, work with leaders on and organizations on is, uh, yeah, just this is a subject that would never have been raised in those, those organizations that you and I knew in our childhood, which would be something like, what are the survival strategies that we came out of our childhoods with, that we brought with us into our professional endeavors into adulthood that in fact <clears throat> we are we make it be completely unconscious about the fact that they we are exercising them whether they make any sense or not with our colleagues that's right that's right and and equally important how do those survival strategies inform the leadership decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis i mean and, and, so and give it, an example. And, like, what are we? Yeah, I feel like this is. Yeah, what would be an example yeah. be of somebody? Bring, yeah. Well, uh, some, uh, um, I was working with someone this week, <clears throat> and um, she is the uh, she's a Russian immigrant and in a senior leadership position, and um, we started talking about the. Um, the feedback she'd received internally was that um, she just never seemed to be able to just relax into the success that the group had identified or that the group had manifested. And so it's an engineering team. They're doing really well. Every time they hit a goal, she she would become more and more anxious. And um, as we started unpacking it, um, she made the association, and it kind of came out of nowhere with, you know, and it was a very strange moment. She just looked at me. She said, well, you know, 20 million Russians died in World War II. I was like, yes. And then <laughs> right. she said, and I don't know if these numbers are right. And then she uh-huh. said, 20 million more died under Stalin. Yeah. And it's like, yes. I said, well, you can't ever relax. Mm-hmm. And... You know, all of a sudden there was this association. Epigenetic epigenetic trauma. Epigenetic trauma. I mean, Mm -hmm. here it is. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, um, her experience is, you know, a Silicon Valley-based company, enormously successful. She is incredibly well regarded as a senior engineering leader. And yet um, World War II and the post-war famines under Stalin are never far from her mind. Mm-hmm. And until we sort of be able to make that connection, all she was doing was just driving a staff crazy, mm-hmm. right? But I mean, here. So here's an example from from some stories you tell about yourself. And it, so this also this gets into mm-hmm. really uh, granular things, right? Like how mm-hmm. how not just how we manage conflict, but um, which which for each and every one of us somehow. There's a direct line to how 
how conflict was managed in our family of origin, which is just terrible to think about all of us <laughs> bringing that, right. not just bringing our <laughs> right. own, but having to clash with everybody else's. Um, right. Uh, right. But you said, for example, that, um, you know, for you, one of the things you internalized growing up, um, and, you know, I have my version of this, it wasn't my mother, but was don't upset your mother, right? The thing, the, yeah. all the tiptoeing around, and then, and but then we bring that into an organizational life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if it, you know, to to give some some context to that. So I grew up with a mother who was um, mentally ill. Um, it was bipolar disorder, schizoid affective disorder. I think I may have reversed that. But anyway, that was the official diagnosis. And so um, I, what I internalized was actually the message from my father, which was don't upset your mother. No matter what you did, don't upset your mother. Because if you upset your mother, everything would start to feel like it was falling apart. And that was sort of a root cause of the chaotic feelings that we grew up with. That over time morphed into don't upset the other. So don't upset the mother became don't upset the other. And so that then became informed how I respond to conflict within an organization, how I mm -hmm. respond to conflict in my personal relationships. And the result was that I would just bail. I would just avoid it. I would just yeah. stay away from it. Or if I couldn't escape, I would just lean too aggressively into it. As opposed to the more adult me being able to see that there's actually nothing really dangerous about that situation. But that took a long time to be able to understand that. And you can see how this might affect my uh, manifestation as a leader where I might placate people or I might be dictatorial and authoritarian when it's not called for. Right. Um, just not to upset the other. Um, I was just looking for, in, in the book you have this. And so this is a question you will, some, you will often, it sounds, ask leaders when they are, they are having struggles or even not understanding themselves why this, some of this feels so hard, that you'll ask this really simple question, like, how was disagreement handled in your family? Right. Right. You know, um, uh, <laughs> I, I remember what comes to mind is another story from a client engagement where I was called in to work with uh, a senior leadership team whose presenting challenge was a lack of innovation. <clears throat> and... Uh, Like when when teams present that as a problem, oh, we're stuck, we can't innovate, you know, it, to me it's often a pointer to other issues. It's not necessarily a pointer to a lack of creativity, right? And um, what became obvious was that uh, innovation was associated with disappointment, with potential conflict within an organization with, you know, because when you innovate, you by mm -hmm. default choose one thing versus another. And so there's always a loser, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I stepped into the organization and I started feeling my way to, oh, this is conflict avoidance showing up yet again. Mm -hmm. And I just went on a limb and I asked the CEO, did you grow up with a lot of violence in the household? And he turned and he said, he said to me, no, no, no violence at all. And 
I turned away and looked elsewhere, and then he just popped up. Just a lot of yelling. And I just mm-hmm. laughed. Because to me, yelling is just the potential of violence. And that's enough to shut right conflict mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. So then I asked the team, it was about 25 people, I asked how many people in the room had grown up with the potential of violence. And 23 hands went up. Mm-hmm. And what we had found was that they had self-selected. They had found, mm-hmm. unconsciously, they had found a tribe of people whose way of dealing with conflict was to shut down creativity, to shut down any potential source of, of, of conflict because they'd all grown up with conflict meaning violence. Mm. Is that very common that... Because um, it seems to me, it is what I think of as just that that the that the challenge in most workplaces would be just that people come with so many different approaches. Well, uh, first of all, to so the first question, it's 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 very challenging. It's very common that it is. <clears throat> people have um, that conflict. Um, in 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 my view, there's generally two ways that people deal with conflict. They either try to shut it down mm-hmm. or they feed it, right, to win. Right. But the, but they're, they, both moves are a move towards safety. But right? are you saying that, the, that this group, um, that somehow they had hired unconsciously for a same kind of person or that the culture yes. had turned? They had, had, they, it had, they, it they, had created this this way of being in everybody or instilled something? Well, it's more circular, right? It's, okay. not, it's, it's um, um, the culture of the founder. Yeah. Right? Because we all bring a culture. The culture of the founder had been unconsciously replicated by the right. choices and people who came in, which then further amplify and strengthen that. Now, what's also interesting about that group was that there were two outliers in that group and those two outliers actually really enjoyed conflict. And when it was too quiet, they would make problems. <laughs> and so what would happen is uh, all of the negative feelings about conflict became embodied in those two characters off to the side. They mm-hmm. became the demons. They're mm-hmm. the only ones who have a problem. When in fact, it was actually a shared collective non-discussion about conflict that created the lack of innovation. Everybody was participating in it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that's generally true, that everybody is participating in what's going yeah. on, <laughs> whether they know yeah. it or not. So, that's right. Okay. So I can imagine somebody listening to this who still has at least one foot or two in the, in the, in the mythical world of how it used to work. <laughs> Right. Where there was hierarchy and there were rules, and um, uh, and I can imagine them saying, "Well, clearly, we shouldn't encourage all of this conversation in a workplace because this is what will result: emotional anarchy." Um, mm. Uh, mm. So, but that's not that's not actually what you're talking about. That's not what you're helping organizations come to. So, but and and explain what what this is all what, what the what the purpose of 
naming of of making this unconscious uh, all of these unconscious dynamics conscious how does that result not just in a place that's more humane but a place that things get done right <laughs> right so so it, you know you do name uh, something that I often encounter, which is, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want to turn a workplace into a therapy session. Yeah, exactly. And I am yeah. not right. I am not suggesting that in any way. But but here's a here's a simple way to understand it. These forces are at work anyway. They're there, and uh, unless we create spaces to name these things for ourselves as individuals or collectively as a group. We're going to continually get stuck in our processes. We're going to continually get stuck fighting against these unconscious forces. So what I always recommend is let's create a little laughter, a little lightness, a little humor, and let's recognize that these things are underway so that we can then pause and move on from that um, Mm -hmm. so that we can actually be productive. Can I share one story from the yeah. book that uh, that illustrates this. So one of the things that I do is I do these long, intensive uh, weekends called boot camps. We call them boot camps. Um, and there's mm, a Full disclosure, a I've, been from, on, I've been on one. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. You have. And um, <clears throat> one of the boot camps, we were talking the first night and uh, – um, and so it's a it's a funny moment for me, and and Krista, you know me, and you 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 know my relationship to poetry and how I use it, right? And so here I am, mm-hmm. um, we've, we're sitting in a circle, and it's quiet, and the sun is set, and I start reading a poem, and this poor guy, he was from the south, so you have to imagine a southern accent. And he says, wait, 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 what the hell are you doing? Why are we reading poetry? I'm here for a leadership conference. I don't get this. And then he sort of goes on to explain that he has a greedy head of sales and that it's a real problem and that he he needs to know an answer. How do I handle this greedy head of sales? Mm -hmm. So I say to him, okay, just do me a favor. Stay with me for the weekend. If you don't get an answer of what to do with this person, by the end of the week, and I'll give you your money back. Okay. So he stays with me, and then a day goes by, two days go by, and you've been at the boot camp, so you know. We start talking about shadow. We start talking about the Jungian notion of shadow, the disowned parts of ourselves, the parts Maybe of the ourselves. The shadow that side of ourselves. Yeah. The shadow side of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about that, and he just gets so uncomfortable. You could just see it. It's like his head is going to explode because he just wants that practical pragmatic answer. Mm -hmm. And so I say to him, just sort of following an intuition, I said, well, tell me about shame, which is one of those odd questions that sort of come out of left field, right? And he starts telling the story of growing up, um, of, of running away from home when he was a teenager and becoming addicted to alcohol and being homeless and living on an overpass in Atlanta. And he starts crying. And I said, um, Tell me about that night. I asked some questions about that night. And what we made the connection to is a promise he had made to himself to never be hungry again. Hmm. And when I made the connection, I said, tell me about what greed means. Hmm. And for me, one way to understand greed is the wish to never be hungry again. 
Mm-hmm. And so what this guy had done was gone out and found the greediest person possible and put them in the exactly the right job that that person would be in for an organization, sales. Let's make sure we're never hungry again, right? And he had disowned that part of himself because the word greed is unacceptable. It got buried. It got turned into something deeply negative within the organization, so much so that he was going to have to fire this character, right? And what we did, and this is the important part, this is where it sort of differentiates from just a sort of an internal exploration. What we did we, was I asked him to reframe greed as not as something as negative and, and self-optimizing, but as a kind of blanket that he could put over the entire employee base and say, what if we transform the wish for you to never be hungry again into the wish that no one in your organization would ever be hungry again? And all of a sudden, things started to expand, and it became a wish for success, and, you know, P.S. sales tripled in a year. Because what happened was he took back that piece of him. Go ahead. Well, so did he relate? Did he keep the the greedy greedy colleague? He did. So he, he was able to relate differently to that person because of what he came to understand about himself. Right. Or to put it another way, he was able to relate differently to that person because he was able to relate differently to that part of himself. Right. And, and I think that that actually points at why this process of inquiry of, that you are engaged in and describe is, in fact, if carried all the way through in organizational life, in leadership, um, doesn't, 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 um, doesn't just leave all this, all these clashing emotional dramas in the middle of the room, but it, it actually invites every single person to be responsible for to, to try to understand in every moment, including the controversies they're having with others, what it is, to, to take ownership of themselves. That's right. That's right. You know, it's, um, <clears throat> let me draw out the process a little bit. In the book, I talk about the fact that three basic motivations, I believe, drive so much of our behavior. The wishes for love, safety, and belonging. Mm-hmm. When we are in a conflictual situation, say at work, <clears throat> and it may be in an in internal conflict, if we can look at the belief systems that are existing, if we can inquire and say, what need might I be trying to meet by my wish to, my continual wish to get more and more sales? Is it love, safety, belonging, or all of the above, for example? That's one way of understanding the intention behind our actions. But then the magic really begins when we start to look at our colleagues and instead of seeing them as some sort of source of irrationality, seeing them as just a problem that needs to be fixed and made to go away, but we see them as yet another human being with a broken heart who's simply trying to feel love, safety, and belonging, 
when we can start to see our colleagues that way, all of a sudden the things that actually impede our productivity or impede our collaboration become not obstacles, but the means to connect and actually build something even greater than what we, we, are, we had before, right? I believe that work doesn't have to destroy us. Work can be this means for self-actualization. And when we create the space for each of us to do this kind of inquiry work together, then what happens is that work starts to manifest in some gorgeous, beautiful work that's sacred and life-giving and life-affirming rather than depleting. And and probably still has its messy moments, right? I mean, it's not about getting but, perfect. But, but, it's but, about getting whole. Right, but, <laughs> right, but, but, yeah. but, but yes, but, but there's nothing wrong with mess. Yeah. Right. That's there's part nothing of this. wrong with mess. It, it, it's like it's gorgeous. It's like a, it, you know, it's it's like an art project. I mean, I defy you to paint a, a, a masterpiece without getting paint on the floor, right. or right. on your right. hair. Right? right. That's the point. It's it's actually fun to kind of be messy. Just I don't guess, be toxic. Yeah, I guess what you're talking about also is, and this also comes from like some of our childhoods or the way we've been trained. Right. That that. That what feels like that discomfort and conflict or just open confusion in and of itself is frightening. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, to you, be avoided. You know, you, yeah, you say the word confusion and, and you know, another yeah. massive uh, or, or frequent and common issue that I encounter with leaders is the belief that they have to have all the answers. Mm-hmm. That they have to and – and those answers must be perfect and that they cannot – um, lead with a question of, I don't know, what do you think, mm-hmm. right? They, they, that when, when the organization presents a challenge, the, the belief system that we have, which is that mom and dad and or, you know, our political leaders, our organizational leaders must have the right answers. And if I have that position, then I have to have all the answers mm-hmm. because if I don't have all the answers, then I'm not worthy of holding that position, that kind of uh, perfectionism uh, uh, actually doesn't leave any room for messiness. It doesn't leave any room for uncertainty. And if there's one thing I know that is true about all organizations is that they are steeped in uncertainty every single day. Yeah, and I guess in that scenario, if there's no room for that, then when the reality of uncertainty becomes unavoidably evident, it feels like a crisis. That's right. That's right. And if there's no room for that, and if every one of those experiences of uncertainty and confusion are crises, then what we're really saying implicitly is that there's no room for human beings because human <laughs> beings are messy and confused right. and uncertain, yeah. and they don't yeah. know about them. And so then all of a sudden we sit there and we say, well, mm-hmm. where did this message come forth that there's no space mm-hmm. for the whole person? Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. I see. And I just, you know, I want to circle back to just that notion earlier on about the call to lead lead yourself. Mm-hmm. Because because this is, so we're, so this this um this picture you've painted of what organizations start to look like when we let the truth in the truth of mm-hmm. ourselves um 
and the truth of the fact that an organization is a collection of humans. Um, messy. It's uncertain. messy. Right. And <laughs> it, it means... Um, it means that we are, but it also gives us the opportunity, each and every one of us, to be more openly taking responsibility for ourselves and growing. Um, yes. Growing openly yes. in the context of our work yeah. and with our colleagues. Yeah. Well, let, let's go back to the, the image I gave before of the leader who presumes that they're supposed to have all the answers. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges within our organizations is that. Uh, the other messy humans with whom we work, our colleagues, will um, participate unconsciously, complicitly, in in supporting that structure by abdicating any responsibility that they may have, either for the messiness or for cleaning up the mess, because they will sit there and they'll say, "Well, the leader's supposed to have all the answers, so I'll just mm-hmm. wait to be told what to do." Well, and so that's, that's kind of the old very, passive-aggressive model that a lot of us are raised well, with. And, and you know, it it can also feel like working with teenagers, right? Mm-hmm. No, you know, it can it can feel like working with people who actually perhaps are stuck, not growing up, uh, not participating in that. And so there's this there's this w- when a leader commits to doing their internal work. Not only do they create um, perhaps marginally more messy, less perfect, less certain organizations, but they also create the space for them for their better parts of themselves to emerge, their more creative parts of themselves. And they create a kind of um, implicit condition and cultural expectation that we're all going to do our work. And that we're right. all going to explore these parts of ourselves so that we can then show up not as ordinate and subordinate people, hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But we can show up as colleagues, each of whom is playing a different role within the organization, but we're still colleagues. Um, I, just want to, I did want to read these questions um, that you wrote. Uh, yeah, you know, I was just going to say, like, so many I, – I've had – as somebody who is an organizational le- leader but never meant to be one, um, right? <laughs> you know, it's all so surprising. Um, you mean you and didn't so grow many... up saying, "I'm going to be a CEO when I grow no, up." No, I didn't. In <laughs> fact, in fact, you know, I've thought about that, Jerry. Uh, when I went to mm. the boot camp, um, mm. everybody else had a had a sentence had a sentence that started like this. I always knew I wanted to start a company. <laughs> <laughs> right, I always knew I wanted to start something, and uh, and that's not that's not true of me. You know, it was more that there was the mm-hmm. work, and then I wanted to keep it. I wanted to protect the work um, and allow it to flourish. Um, so perhaps you wanted to c- make sure that there was a container for the work. Yeah, for me, it was about creating and a container it, for the work. And if the container that you, in which you were working wasn't sufficient, then you would you probably then needed to then go create your own new container. Yeah. But it was yeah. always about the work. Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, so I was oh, trying So where I was going with that is when I talked to other people who, you know, who also created things without, well, I think even people who know they want to create something, they don't know what's going to happen. Um, hmm. people, people have said to me, uh, the work is never the problem. 
it's the people. <laughs> it's like um, it's it's always the people. So so one the people. of the things one of the things you say is um, uh, when you talk about this radical self inquiry is the path mm. to seeing habits and patterns. And mm. I, I find this really helpful set of questions that you pose that anyone could pose of themselves in a workplace. Questions that drive us toward that insight are endlessly helpful. And this is, I guess, when the people um, drive, or you know, are driving you crazy, whatever that means in whatever context. What parts of me mm. are being project projected onto the other person? Yeah, this is kind of what you say. How do I reclaim those parts of me? What do my reactions say about me? Why do I do what I do? Why do they do mm. what they do? What need for love, safety, or belonging might they be trying to meet with their irrational behavior, which is in in italics, which is because it's behavior that appears irrational to me, but right. has reason in them. Yeah. Well, what I hope to do with those kinds of uh, inviting questions is to open up the possibility that the way I'm seeing things is not necessarily factually correct, objectively true. And um, to begin to look at the sources of conflict um, for uh, things that I might learn from that, right? That Buddhist concept of everything being workable, right? Even the people who press our buttons are actually helpful for us, helpful to us. Teaching in us. In our process. Of, they're teaching they are us all teachers. the time. They, yeah. And, and it, it's painful because we'd much rather just put them in a box, lock them away, or in the case of those of us who have power, other them, dismiss them, turn them into demons, scapegoat them, shove them out the door. And um, I think when we, when we give in to those lesser angels of our nature and when we act out of those impulses, when we act out those impulses, we're really um, not only doing a disservice to, to those folks, which is true, but we're doing a disservice to ourselves and the rest of us within the collective because we're missing something. We're missing the opportunity to actually learn from that experience. So, yeah. And I, and I, and I think that, as I was saying before, being able to open up the possibility that the other's behavior, which we so easily relabel as irrational, not making sense, um, that in fact that there's probably, perhaps it's childhood-based, but there's probably a rationale that makes yeah. perfect sense to that person. Right, right. And I guess I, I guess I need to, you know, put this out there too that as we create workplaces where people bring their whole selves to work and there's leadership at every level. It still is a workplace, right? And I think this is confusing, mm -hmm. and this is hard to know how to navigate this because um, it's not a family, you know, mm -hmm. because because everyone won't belong forever, at least not in the form mm -hmm. in which we are colleagues today. Um, mm -hmm. And some of that will just be organic, and some of it will be because because there's not a fit um, or things go wrong. Um, so how or do you, life changes. or life changes. Um, mm -hmm. so, so how do we make sense of that and navigate that it, consonantly 
with this well, I, I, way we want to yeah. honor each other. Yeah, I, th- I think your observation that it is a workplace is mm-hmm. incredibly important. Um, and I smile because, of course, it's a workplace. And yet part of what we're dealing with all the time is, and yet it feels like my family. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, sometimes the way those in positional power resolve that implicit conflict is to say, well, we're all family here. Right. And then that feels a little weirdly dysfunctional and codependent and strange, right? Yeah, and that can get really messed and, up. And that can get really messed up. And mm-hmm. sometimes the way we resolve that, as we were saying before, is no, 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 you leave your personal stuff at this door. Right. Stay so what's away, the middle way? Right? <laughs> and so the middle way is to mm-hmm. recognize that none of us leaves our personal stuff at the door. Mm-hmm. That we are always seeking to replicate structures from our childhood. And by reinforcing that we have a shared sense of purpose, a shared sense of mission, and a shared um, commitment to work, we can use that as a kind of exoskeleton structure so that internally we can each do our work but not expect the organization to solve the wounds of our childhood. Mm-hmm. And that's where – see, where the, 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 the impulse, oh, we're family, gets really, really messy is there's a follow-on say, statement to that is, we're family, so therefore solve my wounds, heal my wounds. Hmm. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. No. When we use our work environments to try to heal our wounds, we are actually opening ourselves up to even more pain and suffering. Okay. I mean, I hear you, and I also think somebody it, – it's it feels like there's such a fine line between what you've been describing and that, right? So – Yeah, it's hard. It's that we create an environment in which people are have the freedom and the invitation to be fully themselves and to be – work to be to, – to actually find the experience of being at work – a means to becoming a, 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 a more full human being and an, and, a, and an adult, like the art of growing up. That's right. And that's not the same thing as, ex, as I just want to get this right, as expecting the organization to do that work for you or your leaders to that's do that right. work for you. That's right. That's right. And I think the distinction that you just made is really mm-hmm. important. It's my work. This is the leading myself. I still have my work to do. Mm-hmm. my own individual work, and by recognizing that each one of us is walking around trying to do our work, we can then create some space around that conflict. We can create space around those sources of, of, of um, rupture within the organization. Say, mm-hmm. okay, you're going over there and you're doing your thing and I'm over here doing my thing. Now I understand that you know, if you if you are um, in, uh, you know, you get irritable every time I send you an email. Well, I understand that. You know, I need to understand how to operate with you, and you need to understand how to operate with me, mm-hmm. and we each need to understand how we operate ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that I think that inquiry process creates the space for us to be able to operate that way and to mm-hmm. form a new way 
a new middle way between work as our family mm-hmm. and work as some sort of disembodied, non-human, non-humane space right. Um, right. For, for work. So you do, well, you have a million practical tools, right? This is not all, mm. this, is, this is, in fact, a lot of it has nothing, feels nothing like therapy, right? It's, it's right. really practical. So, well, I want, so one of them I think is really helpful, and you have this in the book, is OFNR. So this is, yeah. I mean, just frame it like the way I understand this. This is, this is, a, this is a, okay, let's just say we acknowledge that there's a lot going on inside me and there's a lot going on inside you. Was that, you know, there's this line of John O'Donohue that every time you start a conversation with another person, they're halfway through a conversation they were already having with themselves. <laughs> I find that really right. helpful, right? So like every right. time something's going on, especially if it's a conflict or something hard that you need to talk about, um, this is a way to, to work with that um, and, and move, right. move things forward. So just describe that, this pro- the OFNR approach. Sure, sure. So I want to I want to acknowledge too that the that um, this is an adaptation of work that I've learned from the nonviolent communications work of Marshall mm. Rosenfeld. Okay. And um, OFNR, um, it's a really interesting and useful structural way to understand some of the dialogue that that happens. So O stands for observation. F stands for feeling. N stands for need. And R stands for request. And it kind of works like this. Um, uh, You and I have a scheduled meeting on Monday morning, and you show up 10 minutes late. Okay? That is an observable fact. You showed up 10 minutes late to the meeting. That fact triggers a whole set of feelings in me. So... Krista, when you showed up 10 minutes late to the meeting, it made me feel like you didn't care about the meeting, right? That distinction is really important because typically what happens is 9.05 rolls around. You're late to the meeting. I'm looking at my watch saying, there goes Krista. Gosh darn it. She doesn't care. She never values the meeting, and I'm off to the races. And I've created a whole storyline around that, Okay. So going back to the structure, oh, make an observation about value-neutral fact, something that is, that is undeniable. State something that it is, is a fact. fact. Yeah. And you get agreement from there. Okay. Just get agreement from there. Then at the next level, you talk about how it made you feel. Mm-hmm. It made me feel devalued or it made mm-hmm. me feel as if you uh, don't uh, think the meeting is worthy on time. Right. And That's a of, it's story I'm telling you. Right. Myself. And like how how absolutely different that is from you devalued me, right? Or you yeah, disrespected or you, me. You, yeah. you, you disrespected me. You don't yeah. care about this meeting. You don't care about yeah. the work. You don't care about my, uh, my deadlines, right? right? All right. of that is story making. Right. All of that, we don't know if in fact that's true. Mm-hmm. You, you, you then pause and you let that person take in the fact that their action mm-hmm. triggered a set of feelings. They're not mm-hmm. responsible for that set of feelings. They're only responsible for their actions. Okay. Then we move on through the hierarchy into needs. I have a need to feel that the work we do is valued by both of us. So in the future, if you're going to be late, can you let me know? And that's the request. And that's the request. 
So O-F-N-R. It's a simple way. What I like about it is, and I'll ask you this, who's responsible for that feeling piece? Yeah, it's not the me. other person. No. It's me. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, at that moment, if we started that, we had the same scenario, and it turns out that you relate to the meeting because you had a child care problem. And it turns out that you can never make that 9 o'clock meeting because you have a child care problem every Monday. Mm-hmm. But for your own reasons, it wasn't safe for you to be able to say, hey, I can't make a 9 o'clock meeting. I can make mm-hmm. the meeting at 9.15. There's no space for that dialogue if I'm sitting there saying you devalue the meeting, you don't you, – right? Mm-hmm. But when but we make this, the observation yeah. – mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But, but that's a – I mean, that's, that's not too – like I, I, I think this also works where what's going on is even more complicated than being late to a meeting, right? Say more. Because well, just that a lot of things that come up are just not that simple. It's, it's mm-hmm. the way you spoke to me yesterday in that other meeting, right? It's like mm-hmm. it's the things that that something happens on one day and and it festers and you think about it and you interpret it and you feel bad and you feel bad and then by the time you're sitting with the person. It's kind of larger than you are life. off to the races, <laughs> right? And, and I think right. that's you've stuff got a happens. whole story, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Or in fact, or in mm-hmm. fact, things happen that in that really are, you know, there might be some decision made, or I don't know, some, you know, something might happen in a workplace where someone, in fact, um, where where they where there was a decision made that was, um hard for them like legitimately right mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. i don't know I'm just i'm just trying i think this i think i think the being late for the meeting feels simple compared well, to it, a lot of the things that we start meetings with people and we don't know how to start talking about it yeah I, well and i think i i, I, I you, you're right it's it's a um it's a narrow but surprisingly frequent kind of example <laughs> where, where there's, there's a small little incident that all of a sudden blows up into something much larger. Okay. But I think what we're both making a, a point about, which is that there's a profound difference between observable ob- uh, objective fact. Mm-hmm. This thing happened. Right? right. We changed a policy. Yeah. And then a whole bunch of story making and feeling that happens right afterwards. Mm-hmm. And we, all of us, are, are too quick to substitute interpretation for observation. Okay. Right? So you yeah. change the policy and all of a sudden for me, it meant one thing for my well. colleague – Right, yeah. it, and yeah. it changes, and all of a sudden it goes on, and and because we're not schooled in the language of being able to discern between mm-hmm. observation and feeling, we mm-hmm. merge the two, we conflate the okay. two, and that's right. where I think most of the problems in an organization. You know, you made the observation about people being part of the challenge. Well, it's people, but it's because of people's feelings in the way we communicate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So right? it's not people uh, OF, by themselves. No. No, it's it's that it's that we all st- we struggle with ourselves and therefore with others. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> uh, so O F N R observation feeling. Sorry, what's N? I forgot. 
N is need, and that's need, both individual I and need, collective. And R right? is request. Yeah. That's right. And 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 it's not just I need, we need. We right? need, yeah. The organization yeah. has a need. The collective has a need. We have a need for transparency or we have a need for understanding. Mm-hmm. And so then when we make the request, it needs to be possible, mm-hmm. right? It has like I, I, so my so the request is not something like so I need you to be different, right? I need you to be a different person. Are we good? Great. Let's go. The request has to be something that is possible, it has to be actionable, it has to be relatively near term, and it has to be um, something that we can work towards if it fails, right? I can try to notify you, but I may not, right? And Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden Mm -hmm. there's some space for negotiation there. Got it. Um, Do you know workplaces that are, have really internalized this and and what what does it look like and what does it feel like when an organization It's not messy. Is... No. <laughs> it's not <laughs> messy. It's happy all the time. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um yeah, that's a joke. Um <laughs> I know. Yeah, I <laughs> I I do, I do know workplaces that um commit to this kind of movement forward. Um and uh I think that what it, the best way to describe what it's like is that, um, for the most part, uh, each individual uh, starts to grow. And so one of the best ways that I observe this is when uh, those with positional power start to um, respond from a much more calm, nourishing place. Um, you can always tell that an organization is at a really important growth inflection point when the leaders start um, acting really frenetic or um, or mm-hmm. aggressive in some way or another. So. Yeah, and you know that like that it's it's hard, right? I mean that happens because of so many things that go wrong with the way we structure all this, but also because it's a burden. There's a lot Mm. you're carrying that nobody else is carrying quite. But that's also part of the issue, right, isn't it, that you take all these things on yourself. Yeah. You know, I want to recognize what you just said and, you know, Mm -hmm. and the the impact in which you said it. It's hard. Mm -hmm. It's really hard. Um. I, I like to say it's not complicated, but it's hard. Hmm. And um, it's hard to use this process to grow up. It's hard to fully actualize. It's hard to be in a practice of movement towards becoming the adult that you were born to be. It's really hard. It's so hard that most people don't do it. Mm-hmm. It's hard because it's painful. It's hard because we have to confront things. Um, it's hard because we have to withstand other people's feelings. Um, <laughs> you know, because it's it's hard for them to to go through what's going on. Um, it, but I, I think that uh, it's worthwhile. You know, again, our our friend Parker Palmer likes to say that 
Violence is what we do when we don't know what to do with our suffering. Mm. And I think that um, corporations, businesses have a well-earned reputation for inflicting a kind of suffering on our communities and our planet. And I think that a lot of that stems from the fact that the leaders in those corporations don't know what to do with their suffering. And so they inflict it on others. And so, we, you know, we see uh, a kind of callowness, a kind of inhumanity constantly perpetuated. I, mean, I don't know the insides of Facebook well enough, but when we look at their challenges around questions of privacy, questions of uh, how, they, how they handle our data and our information, I'm, I'm left wondering what unsorted baggage, what unresolved issues in their leaders are showing up in their inability to acknowledge their influence in the world hmm. and their responsibility? Um, well, that kind of brings <laughs> kind of brings it to relief that this is intimate work and civilizational all at the same time, intimate and collective and civilizational. Yeah, I mean, isn't it hard to have civil conversations? Mm. And mm -hmm. isn't it worth it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'd rather go to my grave knowing that I tried mm -hmm. and failed than to go back to the place that I was in at 38, outwardly successful and inwardly miserable. I just don't want to live like that, and I don't recommend that others live like that either. I want to read um, a couple of paragraphs from, from your book, Reboot, um, which actually I was planning to read, but we've just talked exactly into it. <laughs> mm. um, it's coming out of a conversation you had with, um, with your therapist, um, Dr. Sayers. It starts like this. What am I not saying that needs to be said? Consider that question alone when you consider your own wayward, twisting, tacking across the surface of the lake path to leadership and adulthood. What have I not been saying recently in the last few years in all my life that needs and needed to be said? Consider and check your heart rate. That beat, beat, beat you feel is not love, but the dread felt of approaching fierce, fearful truth. Consider the ways the unsorted baggage of your life has kept you from not only speaking but being heard. What am I saying that's not being heard? Consider how you've silently seethed, waiting to manipulate the team to prove that you were right all along. Consider the, consider the ghosts in your machine, the click-click of the whole... Sorry, I'm having trouble. I've got to push it away. The click-click of the bolt-action rifle warning you of the dangers of truly listening to those with whom you share this earth, this journey. What's being said that I'm not hearing? What is it that the people that I love, the people I work with, the people who populate the stories of my life are saying that I just can't bear to hear? Is, is it perhaps that I have hurt them, disappointed them, or threatened their safety? Can I consider that my refusal to hear them, regardless of their chosen method of communication, furthers that pain? Consider these things and tell me again how this path of leadership is soft. God bless Dr. Sayers. <laughs> yeah. 
um, I paused because uh, she passed away last year. And uh, she remains in my heart. Um, I think one of, oh, sorry, go on. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I just say one of the ways, I think a synonym that you use that I find really helpful for what the point of all this is, is living into congruity, mm. which just feels, um, feels really realistic. Whereas other ways we talk about, you know, fully growing up or becoming the person you're meant to be or being fully mm. integrated, you know, that living into congruity, which still allows for the fact that there's always going to be a lot of different things going on in any of us and they will never completely match up. Yeah. But that they can be congruous. Yeah. It's... um my realization that 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 is the path that is what we're really seeking um and in another section i talk about it as a as a movement towards equanimity i'm a mm. mess and that's okay my life is fluid and falling apart and um and that's okay um the realization and and dr sayers helped me get there the realization that that um, that movement is towards an inner and outer alignment. Um, what was helpful for me when I was dealing with some of the deepest and most dark, depressive feelings that I had most recently in my 30s was the realization that I was living out of congruity. I was living mm. in a way in which there was a lack of alignment. And so, um, and it would show up in all sorts of ways in which um, I would run faster and faster and be busier and busier and find myself more and more depleted, more mm -hmm. and more empty. And the more things that I put into me, the more empty I felt. And so um, when I shifted the movement, towards alignment, towards congruity, uh, towards equanimity, from a movement of constantly seeking love, safety, and belonging, I ended up feeling loved and safe and that I belong. Mm -hmm. So there's a question um, in the series of questions you ask um, uh, that I'd like to pose to you. Um, and this would be this part of the path of uh, of that alignment of being the same person inside that you are on the outside of those things working together. Um, uh, what kind of leader and adult am I? What is enough? What is enough? Boy, that's not an American question. What is enough? <laughs> what is enough? How will I know when my job is done? Just right today, how do you start to answer those questions, given the life you've lived? Yeah. Well, I think I can I can take them in uh, reverse order. Okay. Um, meaning that. <clears throat> 
I know when my work is done based on the sense that I have done enough. And um, there's a line from David White, which we use all the time, my colleagues and I, which is good work done well for the right reasons. And when I can lay my head down on the pillow at night saying to myself, good work done well for the right reasons, then I feel that I have done enough and I am enough. And when I can hold that, then I understand that that is the kind of leader I am. I am not the kind of leader that is rapaciously seeking more, more, more. And when I can feel my way into that, then I know that the kind of adult I am, the kind of man that I am, is a man who knows, dare I say it, when to rest. Hmm. You know, Can I add just, one other story? Y- yes, yes. I was just going to say that's such a, and it's kind of again, it's in this category of something so simple, and yet, ah, uh, what do we not know how to do in our lives? Rest. But make room for rest and honor that. Make room person. for rest. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know. And in our work, my youngest. Yeah, my youngest son is graduating college, and uh, we were talking about this several weeks before graduation. And I said to him just the other day, I said, you've earned the right to rest right now. You've worked hard, and you don't have to worry about losing your edge Mm -hmm. because you're taking a break. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, And I think that's a message that we do not send enough um, to ourselves and to our colleagues and to our family and to our children. Um, And I think that's why we don't know how to rest, because we don't know how to stop that forward momentum. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder if there's something else on your mind or that you'd want to add someplace we haven't gone in this conversation? Well, what, what also came to mind uh, as we were talking about this was that image at the, at the end of the book where I talk about coming across the toppled over oak tree hmm. and realizing that... Well, um, tell, tell the story. So... Um, I tell the story of being in the hills of Marin County and going for a walk and coming across this toppled over, dying dead oak tree and um, still carrying this question of what does it mean to be a good man? Am I a good man? Am I enough? This sort of, this question that's kind of been with me forever. And as I'm walking, I look at this tree and I say to myself, well, here lies a good man. At the end, and I realize, and I make this connection that what I want to do at the end of my days is to lie on the side of a hill in Marin County 
and allow the anxieties and insecurities and the questions of whether or not I was good enough to dissolve into the earth. And as I lay there, to think of the arms, the branches of the tree, as my arms stretched by acts that I, uh, of which I am proud and acts of which that I'm not so proud, that perhaps I even feel shamed. But knowing that I spent 75, 80, 100 years living into the purpose of sheltering those who were below me. And that image... Um, feels so powerful to me um, when we think about what kind of adult do I want to be? I want to be measured by that. I want to be known as someone who, um, when I pass, when this meat bag of my existence ends, that someone will say, even despite his failings, despite his messiness, despite the ways in which he fell short of his aspirations, he was a shelter. Hmm. He was there. And that feels I, like being a good person. I, I, wanted, I was going to ask you, and I feel like that kind of speaks to this, you know, this whole conversation we've been having about the nature of leadership, the nature of organizational life, um, is absolutely shifts the meaning of authority, that, mm -hmm. you know, that emerged in the 20th century in any case. And I just wonder, like, what, what authority has come to mean to you? How that, how that mm -hmm. notion has transformed through this work you do and the insights you've had. There are times in which those who have power need to speak with authority. I often joke like yelling fire, identifying that there's a fire in the room that everybody should exit, that's authority. Mm. But too often we mistake and conflate that action for the day-to-day, -day, quote, directing of people's lives. And I think that leadership is much more subtle, much harder, and ultimately more life-giving, more fulfilling. And that is the leader's role isn't to be the authoritative figure telling everybody what to do and how to do it, but to be the model for creating a container in which um, their best possible work can get done and to perhaps remove obstacles from the paths that are in front of their colleagues so that they can then grow into their best possible selves. That feels very strong, very firm, and not particularly authoritarian. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. Jerry, thank you so much. Oh, Krista, thank you. This was, uh, this was a blast. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> It was really exciting, and you made me think about a lot of things that I hadn't been thinking. And well, that's I'm good. I'm glad I didn't completely cry. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, thank you so much, and I wish you a great rest of your day. Are you in Colorado today? I am, and it's gorgeous out. And, okay. Um, we're having a good day here. So, Maya, thank you. I, th I think you've been listening in. She's there. Chris, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's there. Chris, Alex, thank you. Yeah. Um, it was really a pleasure. So. 
Thank you, folks. And we'll talk soon. Yeah, yes, we will. Bye-bye.